I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. And on today's episode, we've got a new motorcycle movie. And of course, I love motorcycle movies, anything to do with motorcycles. We're also going to talk with Danelle Lynn, who has ridden her Triumph motorcycle around the United States. And in doing so, she ended up getting a world record. But more on that coming up. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Morris. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tags. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Nathan Millward. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, who we're very proud to be associated with. They've been outfitting adventure riders since 2002, and they've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too. That's free. You can just go to their website, maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And another company we're proud to be associated with is Best Rest Products. They're home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, and the Easy Air Tire Gauge, and a bunch of other motorcycle gear. So whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a reliable tire inflation method, and that is definitely the Cycle Pump. It's what we use ourselves here at Adventure Rider Radio. And get this, it's got a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are riders themselves, so they know what you need when you're out exploring the world. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, provides world-class motorcycle training. Learn proper off-road riding techniques from the pros at PSSOR for your dirt bike, dual sport, or large adventure bike, and increase your skill and confidence so you're ready to tackle your next adventure. Visit www.pssor.com. That's www.pssor.com. Coming up next, we have a couple of producers from the movie A Story Worth Living. No, you haven't seen it yet. It's a brand new movie. It's going to be out at the theaters only in the United States, and it's only going to be shown this once as far as I know. It's a movie about a group of guys that get together. Some of them are brand new riders, and they ride the Colorado backcountry discovery route. There is a new movie coming out, and it's called A Story Worth Living. And today I'm speaking with two of the producers, John Dale and Sam Eldridge. John, Sam, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's good to be here. You don't have necessarily, uh, or, or let, let me say, all the riders in this film didn't have a riding background. But before we get to that and, and the challenging ride that you did in the film, let's start off by talking just a little bit about your background, starting with you, John Dale. So I'm originally from England. I uh, lived here in the States since I was 10 years old and uh, grew up after, after London in Texas and now live here in Colorado. So you grew up riding bikes. You, you'd mentioned your parents bought you bikes when you were young. So you, you got in there early. You learned how to dirt ride. I did, yeah. Had a lot of fun on a uh, little old XR80 and then uh, followed that up with some motocross bikes and uh, yeah, rode pretty much all the way through high school. 
And then so you, you drifted away at one point? I did. Yeah. You know, I got married, started the business and uh, writing just became one of those things that had to be put on the back burner. So I went through uh, almost 20 years without a bike. Yeah, it seems to be a really common story, you know. It's a, and and, you, and and I don't know about you, but I think for a lot of us, you don't mean to do it. You just sort of ride less. You get caught up with the kids, and the next thing you know, you make that thing of where you think it's a temporary thing. I'm just going to sell the bike for now. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Sam, where do you come from? Yeah, so I grew up in the mountains of Colorado. Adventure, uh, rock climbing, mountain biking, all that kind of stuff was just our backyard. Um, but I stepped away from that for a while. Went out to California and went to college out there, where I picked up street riding after watching the infamous and beautiful. I guess it's not really infamous, but the beautiful uh, long way around with Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor, and that inspired me and my two younger brothers to go out and get our licenses, learn how to ride, and recently moved back to Colorado. I'm on staff with Ann Sons as well. And uh, my dad and I actually wrote a book a year ago where we created a video series that was a smaller scope. We went out to Moab and rode mountain bikes and rock climbed and made some free videos for men online. And we found that we really loved working in the world of film and wanted to dream about the next project. And that's kind of where this one found its roots. Well, this is really neat. So so let's set the stage here. John, you have your dirt riding background. So, you know, I, I would say you're qualified to handle uh, most adventures. Um, Sam, you have been riding a street bike and you haven't done any off-road? That's correct, yeah. So somewhere along the line, someone in the group comes up with an idea to ride a thousand miles on the backcountry discovery route of Colorado on adventure bikes. Where does that come from? So as we were dreaming about next projects after the Killing Lions uh, short film series that we did in 2014, uh, one of the things on the table was a motorcycle trip. And, you know, as we were sort of blue sky dreaming, uh, we considered maybe trying to go out to Australia and doing a ride, in, you know, in the outback. And, and then we realized we actually live in one of the best uh, riding places in the world. I mean, people travel from all over the world to come and ride here in Colorado. And so while it's our everyday, uh, for a lot of people, Colorado is a pretty exotic location. Um, and so we started sort of putting pen to paper, um, coming up with plans. And, uh, you know, one of the first things we had to do was actually get the, the, the cast of riders together and, and, and help them learn how to ride off road. And we wanted that to be part of the story. Part of what we wanted to do was inspire people to try things that they haven't tried before. And so we reached out to Rawhide Adventures, uh, which is one of the BMW trading schools, and uh, you know, asked them if we could bring our team along. And so Jim Hyde over there um, was very gracious. And uh, our team went out and we spent, uh, I guess it was, what, three days? Yeah. Um, which for several people on the team, that was literally their first time on dirt. Well, why motorcycles? You know, when you're talking about doing another film, and I guess you're looking for things that are adventurous, there's all kinds of things out there. I know you mentioned the, the film Long Way Around with uh, Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor, and a lot of people are influenced by that film. That's what makes it so great in my mind. I know people can be critical of the film in, in many ways, but um, I, I think it's great. It, it really brought it to the surface for so many people. But was it you sitting around one night just watching this film and said, hey, someone said, let's do that one? Kind of. I mean, it's more complex and also as simple as that. There's a few things I think as guys, when we sit around and we kind of go, 
what are trips you'd love to do? Is it sea kayaking? Is it mountain biking again? I think that the motorcycle really is the epitome of male psychology. It's this sort of voice that whispers, we could do this. You could just do two wheels. You could take it off road. Like this is, this is possible. And you kind of get enough people looking around at each other with that look in your eye. You know, this is something we've always loved dreaming about. This is always something that we've wanted to do. And what if we made it possible? I think that we were kind of in denial. Like we were, we were being very cautious as we began to plan it, you know, well, let's just look at a few bikes. Well, let's just compare different models. Well, it can't hurt to get on one. And, uh, you know how that goes. (laughs) I was going to say, yeah, it can hurt to get on one (laughs) in certain instances. But Sam, let me ask you then, because you're the non-off-road rider, was challenge part of it? Was the fact that you you didn't know how to do this, you had to learn a new skill? I mean, I guess for everyone, really, there was probably something new to learn. Even you, John, having the dirt background, you probably had things to learn on this trip. But Sam, was that part of it for you? It absolutely was. We're in this world that's inundated with those over-the-top adventure films, you know, guys who just are phenomenal at what they do. And people look at that and they go, that's amazing, and I'm never going to do it. And there's something I just feel that is more honest about I am totally new to this and that learning it and that struggling with it and that just the challenge of learning how to do it was absolutely part of the appeal and part of the story that we wanted to tell. I I think you hit on an excellent point there because these films that are all over the internet, it's all about these incredible extremes of the jumping and things like you say, you know, very few people will ever do it. And even if you look at the outtakes from the people who did it, there was a lot of misses and a lot of crashes to get the footage that they have. So if you can't jump over, you know, a 200 foot jump and do a little twist in the air and, and slip your legs out, well, what are you really doing? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Adventure and something being worth doing has become so unattainable. If it has to be that big show fireworks, like adventure can actually be very doable and very accessible. So what's the key to making this interesting when you're not doing these massive jumps and ridiculous stunts? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, one of the challenges we have is what people are used to seeing is the Red Bull adrenaline filled stuff. And so somehow trying to communicate to them that, you know, these are 550 pound bikes with, you know, many times another 50, 60 pounds of gear plus a rider on them. Um, if we drop them over, uh, you know, it can take a couple of people to pick them up and, uh, trying to communicate that in a film when what people are used to is sort of the borderline insane, um, is difficult to do. And so what we chose to do was just, just to show the whole progression. So to rather than pretending that we were good at this and everyone knew what they were doing, you know, the film starts with us buying motorcycles and then uh, going and learning how to ride and dropping the bikes a ton. Um, and so it, it just it was we went on a journey. And what we want, what we try to do in the film is communicate that journey and make it accessible to people. And also with the film, you didn't focus on the crashes. This is not a film of the fast action, one crash to the next crash and and people falling down and not necessarily getting hurt, but rolling over and doing all the things that you often see in films. You didn't focus on that. No, no. Really for us, the film provided a context to talk about a much larger story, uh, to talk about life and some of the the deeper things that are going on. And we just happened to do that in the context of a, of a thousand mile journey uh, on, you know, beautiful road and and beautiful dirt. 
the movie is called A Story Worth Living, and the movie is about the story or your story. Talk about that, John. Yeah, so each one of us, uh, we, we live in a much longer story. There's something else going on. Um, and I think so many of us, we, we think of ourselves as being sort of the central player in that story. And what we wanted to challenge people to do is to think about a larger story, um, a larger story where they do have a vital role to play, but where there's a lot of other people involved um, and there's much larger themes, bigger things going on. What is it about the adventure that changes you and changes your story? I, I think it's really easy for life to work for most people these days. And what I mean by that is, you know, we show up at our job, we do whatever our role is, and there's something about adventure where we find our limits, that we find the end of ourselves, where things go wrong um, and we have to dig much deeper. And so there's something about putting yourself in a situation where you're challenged, where you find your own limits, and when you're forced to exceed those limits, uh, that makes us become better people. John, is a story or an integral part of any story, is it peppered with, or maybe a large portion, adversity? Yeah, so I don't remember who it was who said it, but someone much wiser than me said that something along the lines of adventure starts when things go wrong. That'd be Yvonne Chouinard. Yeah, that guy. Um, and, and there's something true about that, right? That if, if we go out this afternoon and jump on our mountain bikes and go for a ride and everything just goes great and we get back, like, we'll call it a ride. But if we get out there and we have a chain break or a flat tire, all of a sudden it becomes an adventure. And there's something about things going wrong that just force us to dig deep into ourselves. Um, and so, yeah, I would agree with you. It's interesting that, because I think most of us understand that. That's what makes the stories. You, you go and do, I don't know, a hike somewhere and the weather's great and everything goes good. It's a story, but it's pretty mundane. You go out and you find that you're out in the wettest uh, time that this place has ever seen and you've slogged through mud and everything. Then it becomes this story that you can tell with people. And it's ironic that when we're planning for a trip, the what we want to do is plan thoroughly to make sure that we do not have anything that is unpredictable or adventure-like. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think what we what we do is that we prepare so that when things do go wrong, we're able to survive those situations. And so it's and and that's I think the difference between you know, a fully guided tour where everything is taken care of and saying, okay, now I'm going to go out equipped that hopefully I can handle whatever's thrown at me. Can you tell which one of us brought all of the spare gear on the trip? <laughs> <laughs> and did you need the spare gear? Uh, thankfully, on during the actual film production, we didn't have any major mechanical issues other than those caused by Rex, uh, which there were several. Um, but yeah, on the scouting trips, we, we did bump into a, run into a couple of issues. The suffering piece is so interesting because on the one hand, we do want to have out our lives so we can avoid the uncomfortable. And yet we also feel this pull of, we don't want to fabricate suffering. I don't want to go out just when it's pouring to have that experience, but it's this interesting tension of you can't orchestrate for things to go wrong. And yet it's how you respond in those situations that really define you. I thought it was interesting, the film, because you referred to it as suffering, but you're talking about adversity. 
I think it's both. I think adversity is that what, which comes against you and tries to slow you down or stop you from reaching whatever goal you have in mind or accomplishing something. Suffering is a much more internal experience. And that can be because of those dreams that were not fulfilled or because of just experiencing the pain of the world. Um, you can experience suffering from seeing roadkill if you really have a heart that loves the beauty of an elk. Um, but the suffering and this adversity really do go hand in hand as these external and internal experiences of difficulty. Right. And what we tried to do in the film is is use the sort of what I would call light and momentary type of adversities that we experienced as a launching point to go into much deeper conversations. So another one of the gentlemen who was featured in the film shared his story um, and he was severely abused as a young boy and found his rescue through horses. And we had the opportunity to talk with him and show him working with his horses. And his story is remarkable, even more so than we were able to communicate in the film. Um, but what he went through as a young boy was true suffering. And what we wanted to show is that people can find redemption. In this whole thing, I know it's a film and I know a big part of what you're doing, you know, behind the scenes is actually making a film. And, and I think probably many people get that because if you've ever tried to film anything with a GoPro camera and you want to get a bunch of different angles, you just you realize immediately how much work it is to do this. But what were the, the real difficulties of the adventure itself for you guys? Gosh, yeah. So aside from the hurry up and wait that is film, aside from rewriting several stretches of ground over and over again and, and waiting and letting people get ahead of you, um, the actual difficulties were some of those relationship interplays. Um, you've got six guys, six writers, and then all the, the crew alongside on this extended adventure road trip with you know, normal tensions and normal conversations that sort of arise when you hit something difficult or someone hit, takes a, a spill that's a little gnarly. Um, some of our crashes were, I think, more damaging than we knew at the time. Um, and navigating your father or your brother or your friend's health and weighing that against a shot, you, you've got this interesting balance that a, a trip has of you're trying to reach a goal and sometimes the goal is the ending and sometimes the goal is a pass and sometimes the goal is just being there and everything from broken parts to hurt feelings to broken bikes like gets in the way of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to give away spoilers because obviously most people haven't seen the film yet, but if we had had access to a hospital and access to x-ray machine, like some of the people wouldn't have continued the trip. Right. And so making that call when you're in the backcountry, you know, it's one thing when it's just a group of friends out for a ride. It's another thing when you're in the middle of big, huge film production. Um, and, you know, I, I remember sitting there that next morning after one of the folks on the team had a, a pretty gnarly crash um, and just going over the, you know, going over them physically, taking them out for a short ride before we turned the cameras on. Um, because, you know, ultimately I had to give the thumbs up that, that he was okay. Um, and it turns out he wasn't, but we didn't know that. And so, you know, th things like that, um, they just, they, they can weigh on you for sure. What do you want to tell people about this film? Well, we would love for people to check it out. Uh, probably the best way to do that is to go to www.astoryfilm.com. You can watch the trailer there. You can read more about the project, learn about our partners in the film. 
Uh, we've got tons of photography, videos. We have uh, gear reviews where we show the stuff we took with us on the trip. Um, and then come to a theater on May 19th. We're uh, in select cinemas nationwide, um, pretty much any major city. This will be playing May 19th at 7.30 p.m. Uh, and we'd love after you see the film if you dropped us a line and told us what you thought of it. What do you expect them to get from it? I hope that it's going to stir the longing for adventure that beautiful photography does. And I think that people will walk away, maybe not with the words to articulate some of the internal stirrings of maybe they wish they were part of a similar group or be able to have similar conversations or to have an understanding of their own story. And I think that that's going to stir some things up that people may not be able to verbalize on the ride home, but I hope it's something that germinates in their minds over the, the coming weeks after watching it. John, Sam, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. The movie is called A Story Worth Living. I've been speaking with John Dale and Sam Eldridge, who are producers of the movie. You can catch it on May 19th at theaters in the United States only. And after that, I think you're going to have to drop by their website and see if you can find a way to watch it from there. Well, that certainly sounds like a, a great flick to head out to the theaters too. And, and why aren't there more movies like this for us? More motorcycle movies that you can see in the theater. I don't think I've seen a motorcycle movie in the theater. And and I want to talk to you for a minute about Aerostitch. Aerostitch, as you know, is one of the show's sponsors. And we're extremely proud to be associated with them. Why? Because they make great gear. Simple as that. Aerostitch says the best way to ride more is making your riding the easiest, fastest way to get from A to B. Simply everyday commuting, errands, long distance, adventure riding, or whatever. And Aerostitch has been around for 33 years. They've been designing, making, selling equipment that makes riding anywhere in all weather easier, safer, and more comfortable and more fun. And I told you about the Ride More Guarantee. You go to the website and look at the details on it. But basically, if you're buying one of the um, their Roadcrafter classic riding suits and you wear it for a month, if you're not riding more than you did before you received it, you can send it back and get a full refund. That's amazing. That tells you something, as I've always said, about their quality. I tried on one of their AD1 pants the other day. Uh, first time trying these pants on. Well, not only do they fit smack on right away, really nice fitting pants, really nice. And I like adventure riding. I do a lot of rough riding. For me, they're beautiful. They have really nice pads, but they're just overall real nice pants. They're Gore-Tex and they've um, got a zipper completely up the side with a, with a snap at the bottom. They're just high quality pants. When you put them on, you can feel they're actually extra tough. They're going to take a while to break in, but that's Aerostitch quality. Now, if you go to Aerostitch forward slash ARR, you're going to get a 10% off your first purchase. Or if you're a return customer, you get free shipping on the next order. Think about it. 10% off a riding suit. That's a good chunk of money. Visit them at aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Let them know that it's working for them. I'm speaking with J.J. Lewis from the Good Adventure Company. And J.J., I'm assuming, especially because spring is around the corner, you are probably going crazy right now. It, it, we've been so busy, Jim. It's it's crazy, absolutely crazy. But we're, we're having a great time being busy, and we're we're uh, we're just bustling with uh, you know with, with the site and uh, getting these trips coordinated. Well, let's talk about those trips to begin with, because I know you have something coming up in May. Is that the Navajo Nations trip? Yeah, we have the Na- Navajo Nation Great Adventure, uh, May seventeenth through twenty, and we just finished scouting the final route uh, this past week, and. It is is absolutely epic. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm 
I always say that I can take you to the, one of the more, um, you know, the best campsites in the Southwest, but I have some of the best campsites in the Southwest, um, on this trip and absolutely breathtaking. Um, and so, uh, we are going to be visiting this, these mysterious and sacred places on the Navajo nation and, uh, and just give, uh, giving people the experience of a lifetime. One of the coolest things you know, I've, I've, I've never seen a bobcat or a mountain lion in the wild before, but on this route within five minutes of each other, I saw a bobcat cross the road and then I saw a cougar cr- cross the road. No it was way. absolutely <laughs> stunning. So it's way, way, way out there on the on the places where most Navajo never even travel. So I, I had a, a joke today when I was uh, at work, and um, most of the staff I work with is Navajo. And I said, "Well, if you ever, ever need anybody to show you around the Navajo Nation, I'm I'm at your service." And they thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so, but it's it's kind of true. So I've done a lot of traveling on there, and uh, one you know, of those the, animals alone would have been enough to you know rock your mind, but to have the two of them that close together that's incredible it was it was absolutely stunning hey was, wait a it, second are you guaranteeing this now so this on this trip this is, I, I, <laughs> I think it's may 17th 20th so so if we come out do we get these cougar sightings and, and the lynx sighting i we'll, we'll see we'll, we'll hope i will hope so but i think i think honestly jim i think people will see something and experience something they would never seen before on this trip it's it's a pretty sandy uh, route in some sections. So um, I was riding my um, my 2016 GS Adventure, and uh, so knobbies are definitely um, required as well as soft luggage. We don't want any any broken uh, broken legs or anything like that. But uh, there are some some sections of pretty deep sand, um, so folks need to be confident on their bikes and have pretty good off-road uh, ability. It's not going to be as epic as uh, the Copper Canyon in terms of difficulty-wise, but it certainly will be challenging in some sections, which are pretty sandy. And this one, um, you're raising money for, um, is it the uh, the Navajo Youth Empowerment Services? Is that what this money goes for on the Navajo Nations for 17th to 20th? That's correct. We're trying to support Navajo Yes, which is a longstanding sustainable organization on the reservation that serves youth um, specifically. And they do it in a great way, getting kids active and getting kids outdoors. Well, what about um, what's the next one? I think you have Colorado Backcountry. Is that uh, August 6th to 12th? Yep, the Colorado Backcountry Expedition is August 6th through 12th, and uh, that's seven days and six nights of uh, a mixture of the Colorado Backcountry Discovery Route as well as our favorite our favorite trails and passes. So um, it's going to be just absolutely stunning. If, if folks have never ridden the Backcountry of Colorado and they want to come and join us, you know, we do have bike rentals available um, uh, for folks interested coming in, coming in. It's just going to be absolutely stunning. It's going to be a mix of, of camping as well as uh, lodging. And so um, both of those are included in the price. Uh, and that's going to go, the profits are, are going to go uh, to Lost for a Reason in, this, in our support for the Todanashi Shelter Home in Kayenta, Arizona on the Navajo Nation. So uh, with Lost for a Reason, the past year, we've put over $50,000 worth of labor and materials to get this um, shelter up and running after they had a huge uh, plumbing leak. They've just uh, received an occupancy um, for about eight families from the Navajo Nation. And we're hoping that with our help that they could even double that to help the families in need who are suffering a, a domestic violence incident. So we're really happy to support that. So that's going to be a really, really cool trip. It's important to remember that both of these trips, that you're, what you're doing with all of this is raising money to help people. This one, May 17th to 20th, just jumping back to the Navajo Nation's one again, you still have room on that for people? 
we still have room on that. We're, I'm getting a lot of interest. Um, we don't really have a capacity limit on that. I've got guides that can come and assist. So we've got we've got availability. So if folks are interested, just go to our good-adv.com and go to our guided trip section and fill out the portion at the uh, at the bottom of the page there and get in touch with us and we'll get back to you soon. Yeah, and that one in particular, that's really lining up some great things. Like you said, you're ending at the Overland Expo. So it lets somebody plan a little vacation there with an amazing variety of things to do. So that's definitely something uh, worthwhile getting to the 17th to 20th one. Now, I know you've got bike rentals for this. So if somebody wants to come and ride, it's dead simple. They can they fly into the airport and then you pick it up from there. Yeah, fly in to Durango, um, and we have bike rentals available. Uh, I've got a couple F800 GS Adventures, um, F800 GS available. I've got two F650, one of which is an F650 Dakar. Um, we have 690 Enduros, Husky 701s. Um, I'm, I'm partnering with a couple of companies in Durango that are excited about what the Good Adventure Company is doing. So we have availability to you know pick you up at the airport. You know, load in, load your soft luggage, um, check it, check it in your baggage, uh, bring your helmet and your boots and, and your, your gear. And, uh, we'll pick you up at the airport and, uh, and, uh, get you, get you on the road. Um, whether you're going on one of our trips or whether you want to explore the back country of your, of Colorado, New Mexico, Utah on your own. That's really neat. I, I certainly like the idea of that. Speaking of soft luggage though, let's just for a second talk about the soft luggage you have at the Good Adventure Company because we're talking about the trips here and that's great, but you also sell the products and I don't want people to forget about that. And if you're thinking about getting soft luggage, this may be your place to go because the profits are going to support sustainable charities. So what soft luggage do you have? Uh, we represent Wolfman uh, Luggage and uh, Giant Loop and Endurastand. So if folks are interested in, in looking at those, uh, check our website. Enduristan has a really great uh, YouTube video that Black Dog Cycle Works has done. Shows you all about their tank bags and their soft luggage. Um, and, uh, you know, we sell a lot of Wolfman. We sell a lot of Giant Loop. And we're proud to really represent those, org- those organizations, those great companies. Um, and so, you know, when, when we ride off-road, I mean, we really love soft luggage because it's a lot safer uh, than your traditional hard, hard luggage, you know, on our Copper Canyon trip, I, you know, was almost insistent of please use your soft luggage. And, uh, we had, we had somebody that, that came and brought their hard BMW cases and boy, we were hammering, hammering the dings out and trying to get those straight. And we really couldn't. Um, so get your soft luggage off, off road for sure. You know, it's a lot safer and, um, you know, and it's a lot, it lasts a lot longer. And, it, and, and when you fall, it's kind of like a, a big pillow in the back. So I can't believe you just did that, JJ. You just opened up a can of worms. This is like starting a new thread about oil or tires. You realize this? Well, I, I'm, it's, uh, it's true. You know, you, you know, it's true, Jim. Uh, you can't, you no, can't, no, you're, you can't you're, argue with this. You're preaching to the choir. I'm already riding with soft luggage and I love soft luggage for a lot of reasons. I know, but if you are a true hardcore off-roader or off-road adventure rider, um, you're not going to be riding uh, hard luggage if you're going to be going on some of the routes that we're going on, at least. Um, it has its place for sure in terms of long-term um, around-the-world travel if you're, not, if you're not getting into gnarly places for sure. So I don't want to knock it completely, but I, you know, I just think soft luggage is the way to go in terms of the, what, what we're riding out here. When you drop your, I know a lot of people say when you drop your bike and you soft luggage, you're dropping it on your gear. Yes, to some extent, but what you just said earlier, just a pillow, and that that is a huge part of you. 
you've got soft luggage that's waterproof and you have it done up properly, it's like a big airbag. And so when you drop the bike, that's a lot of stress taken off the bike when it lands. There's no doubt about it. And like you say, anything technical that you're riding where you're dropping the bike a lot, and let's face it, if you're riding off-road with your adventure bike, you're going to drop it, and probably a lot. There's nothing nicer, I think, than the soft luggage to be your, um, your support when it goes down. That's right. That's right. And it's safer for your legs, for sure. Well, that's great, JJ. Hey, wait a second. You've got a, um, you've got a screening coming up, don't you? Yeah, we do. We are um, so happy to be co-hosting the premiere of the New Mexico Backcountry Discovery Route movie in Durango on March 26th at, at 6 p.m. And we're going to be co-hosting that with Moto Cafe Durango, which is a great uh, off-road uh, rental adventure suspension shop in Durango, Colorado. So we're, we're glad to partner with them uh, in terms of uh, representing the New Mexico BDR. Well, you certainly have a lot of fun coming up, JJ. We are so excited, Jim, and uh, we really appreciate your support on Adventure Rider Radio, and this is an excellent podcast, and we really appreciate all the listeners that that get in touch with us, and sometimes it's just giving us a phone call and talking about bikes, you know, and that's that's great. It's so it's so fun to make connections, and Adventure Rider Radio has really helped us do that at, at, at Good ADV, so we really appreciate the listeners supporting us. May 17th to 20th, August 6th to 12th, two trips you definitely would want to check out if you've got the time. And I love the idea of flying in with your helmet and whatever, jumping on a rental bike. Just great. JJ, thanks very much. Until next time. Thanks, Jim. And that was JJ Lewis from the Good Adventure Company. And you can find out more about the uh, Good Adventure Company by visiting them at good-adv.com. And I kind of tell you, if you're looking for an adventure, they, they already did their um, their Mexico trip earlier this year. And if you saw it on Facebook, you heard anything about it, it sounds like it was just like the most amazing trip ever. Um, they went through spots that um, were something, uh, places that you wouldn't otherwise go, you would have no access to. They know the areas that they're going into, and it just sounds like, you know, you will not go wrong. I, I would highly recommend you looking at these two trips, May 17th to 20th and August 6th to 12th. And like I said, the 17th to 20th one, ending up at Overland Expo, well, I think that's just a beautiful vacation set up there. Coming up in just a minute, we're going to speak with Daniel Lynn, who is a motorcycle adventure rider, who's ridden her Triumph motorcycle around the United States and picked up a Guinness Book of World's Record. Stay with us. We got more. Hey, if you're looking for a set of soft luggage for your bike, look no further than Giant Loop. Giant Loop makes amazing bags. They've got a great reputation. Of course, that's why we're really proud to be associated with Giant Loop is we like to be with companies that, of course, make high quality gear. Why? Because we like to ride with quality gear at Adventure Rider Radio. I think we all do, really, if you think about it. And here's what I want you to do. Go to GiantLoop.com and look at their Siskiyou panniers. This is a cool set of panniers. We're talking completely waterproof, but it's soft luggage. You don't need a rack. They're a rackless mount. They mount to the, the footrest. You can still have a passenger sit on them. So you get the, the whole pannier box style with them because they actually look like a box. You got to see them, um, but they're completely waterproof. And get this, 70 liters. That's 35 liters a side. That's plenty of room to pack all your gear. I think these look like a really nice set of panniers. And Giant Loop is known for quality. So I think it's something you can buy with confidence. It has a big, huge sign in there saying waterproof. So I think you can be pretty much guaranteed they're waterproof. And if you're going to buy something from them, make sure you use the code ARR because the code ARR will get you free shipping in the U.S. And please, anytime you're dealing with Giant Loop or any of the companies that help with this show, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. 
Danelle Lynn has been traveling her entire life, right from birth, maybe beforehand. And she still continues to travel around, and now she's doing it by motorcycle. She just finished a trip that took her a year riding around the United States, and because of it, she ended up in the end getting a Guinness World Record for it. And get this, this is Adventure Rider Radio's first interview from the Grand Canyon. Yeah, that's right. Danelle was at the bottom of the Grand Canyon when I spoke with her at the Havasupai Native Reserve. As you're going to hear, Danelle is a woman of firsts. She likes to do things that are different. And this interview, well, it's certainly a first. Here's Danelle Lynn from the depths of the Grand Canyon. My name is Danelle Lynn. I am from the world, I like to say it, from everywhere or nowhere, depending on how you look at it. I grew up military and continued to move every three years throughout my life. And what I do is a multitude of things. I run a couture fashion company. I'm also a freelance writer as well as an author of a few different travel books. And I'm currently doing a project down in the Grand Canyon with their school system here um, in their special ed program. Daniel, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. And you are the first interview that we've ever done from the bottom of the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Well, you're a woman of firsts, right? I mean, you do like to do things like that that, <laughs> that are different. And and even though you haven't planned this necessarily, this is a first. That's really cool. That is really cool. Yeah, I actually, um, it's funny. I've always lived my life that way that that I enjoy doing things that I haven't before or taking bikes where they're not supposed to go or doing travel that women aren't supposed to be on, different things like that. So it's kind of fun to be the first on Adventure Rider Radio down in the Grand Canyon. I like it. And it's interesting, you said in your introduction, you're from the world. And a lot of times people will say that sort of thing. You know, they have trouble nailing it down to exactly where they're from. But but you moved, what, every two and a half or three years growing up. So you really are. You really don't necessarily have one single place that is necessarily your home. Right. Yeah, I actually, um, I pretty much call wherever I'm at at the time home. But in terms of the way everyone usually defines home. I don't really have a place that I've ever found that felt exactly like home. I was born in Tucson, Arizona. So some people say, well, that's your home. But I moved within my first few years of life. So what's that like? I mean, I I know it's kind of difficult for you probably because you've done that and that's how you grew up and that's all you know. But you must have dealt with every time you moved, you dealt with people who didn't move around. What was different for you? Um, Growing up as a military kid, it kind of just was everyday life. That's just what you expected. You knew you'd have to move in a couple years and make new friends or reset up your room, different things like that. And I think as I came into my 30s, I really started to meet people who, especially on this last journey that I took, who had lived in the same town their whole life. And that fascinates me because I can't even fathom it. Like I I truly have difficulty understanding how you live somewhere your entire life. Because in 30 years, I've probably lived in 20 different homes. So now as an adult, do you find yourself still moving every two or three years? <laughs> yeah. So I, I lived in Phoenix for about, oh, geez, seven years, I think, in Phoenix, Arizona. But I moved homes every couple years because I'd get a different job or want to live in the different side of the city. So I'd just pack up and move. So I haven't lost that itch yet at all. And I have two older brothers that very much love staying stationary. And they have roots and they have homes. And I just haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> in my mind, I'd see one of the two things happening, just that. Either you're going to stay in one spot, you're saying, no way I'll ever move again, or you've got it so ingrained in, in who you are that uh, you're going to find yourself motivated up and go, and all your friends are going to go, what are you doing? Why are you leaving? You don't know. Right. Yeah. 
No, that's very true. How long have you been in the Grand Canyon for? I've been down here about two months. Well, the Grand Canyon is certainly on many people's list of places to visit. What's it like living down in the Grand Canyon? Oh, it's amazing. Every weekend I hike down to the, because I'm on the Havasu by reservation, so I get to hike to the Havasu Falls and Mooney Falls and Beaver Falls. So it's really beautiful. Um, my first night in town, I remember waking up a little bit scared because I heard this ruckus outside. And I was like, oh my gosh, what's that? I couldn't figure it out. And so I went to my window and I peeked and then I ran to get my camera because it was horses tipping over my trash can to try to get food. And I'd never had that before. You know, I'd had bears and raccoons, but I'd never had horses attack my trash can. So it was pretty awesome. <laughs> Another one I haven't heard of either. I haven't heard of yeah. horses attacking their trash cans. So it's it's completely different in the Grand Canyon. What's your weather like now? This is March. Right now we're warm. We're typically between Tucson and Phoenix temperatures because we're, we're so far down in the canyon. Now above on the rim, it's much cold, colder. So a couple of weeks ago there was snow whereas we were warm down here. Nice. So our mornings are chilly still. Um, I think inside my little my little house was like 67 this morning inside. So you still get a little bit of a chill, but we're already probably near high 70s during the day because it's warm enough for swimming. All the locals are out swimming in the fall. Oh, it's warm enough for swimming. Wow. Hmm. The water's still a little chilly, but it's not too bad. <laughs> it's not you know a heated pool or anything, but it's nice. Well, you're a motorcyclist, um, and among other things, yes. clothes designer and uh, author. So how did you get into motorcycle riding? And I can picture you moving around every two and a half, three years. Um, where do you get into motorcycle riding? And where do you get your license now that I think about that? <laughs> nice. Um, so I got into motorcycling. On There's some pictures on a few of my sites that have me, oh, I don't know. I was less than one years old. I was an infant sitting on the tank of my father's motorcycle. I like to say my first motorcycle ride was in utero when my mom was pregnant with me and riding on the back of the bike with my dad. And then later on, as I got a little bit older, not old enough to ride, my bad motorcycle accident and got rid of all his bikes. So there was a big gap of motorcycle riding for someone who comes from such a motorcycle riding family. And so, oh, I don't know, maybe six years ago or so, I just did the certification course where you do the safety course to make sure that I knew how to ride a bike and I picked it up pretty easily again. And so got my license and then started taking trips right after that. I tend to be more of a distance cyclist than um, in town. I always had a hard time commuting to work on my bike because I'd want to keep driving and I lived so <laughs> close to where I work that it made it difficult. <laughs> I used to get up early in the morning to ride so that I could get several hours of riding in before I went to work. I had the same issue. <laughs> I didn't want to go in. Yeah. Yeah. There are times where I looped around the city because I was just like, eh, I'm not ready to go home yet. I want to ride. And it was crazy because, you know, it's high traffic, it's after work, but I only lived six miles from where I worked. So it was kind of like just right <laughs> you, as you start getting going, you want to have the rhythm and go further. Well, I think we can hear where this is going, where it's going to take you ultimately. So how did you stumble onto your first long trip? On a motorcycle? Yeah. Um, so about five years ago, I think it's been five years now. I met two people from Australia when I was traveling through Peru they were on a motorcycle adventure from Alaska down to Ushuaia, the common route that a lot of people take. And it, I got thinking and I said, oh my gosh, I had just gotten really good at riding my bike Stanley, which was an 82 Virago at that time. And I'd gotten used to wrenching on it. And so I thought, I want a big trip like that. So when I came back from that, started chatting more with one of the guys and ended up meeting them at the end of their trip. 
And I rode pillion with Wade through Argentina and Chile on the back of his BMW S. And so that was kind of my first taste of adventure motorcycling. And on the flight home from that is when I decided to start saving for my own adventure and to take a year-long sabbatical. And at that time, I didn't know if it would be abroad or if it would be in my home country or where I was going to go. I just knew to start saving and I downsized. I moved again to a really small apartment and um, started saving from there. What were you doing for a living then? So I've never just done one thing. So it's kind of goofy. I don't idle very well. So at that time, I was working for the Department of Education, which was kind of the typical breadwinning job, I guess you could say. And then I also still did the DL Couture, which is a design line that I make custom fashion for. I was running Two-Wheeled Wanderlust, an independent um, motorcycle adventure magazine. And I was also writing and developing a handbag line at that time. Okay, I'm having trouble keeping up here. <laughs> this, is, this is an awful lot. That's a lot on your plate. Yeah. I don't need to tell you that, but I mean, I have to think about it here. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a bit weird. I mean, it's always hard when people ask me what I do. I, I tend to refer them to my website because when I try to just say it, it comes out and they just look at me in awe like, really? Are you lying? Are you pulling my leg? And I, I never really knew that the that it was kind of weird until I think I was, it was probably around my 30th birthday and I was having beers with my dad and I just kind of got to chatting with him and I was like, you know, I'm a little different. And my dad was so sweet and he's like, yeah, baby, you are, but it's okay. <laughs> you know, cause I just always thought that everybody, if they wanted to try something, they just did it. And so if I wanted to run a couture company, you know, I, I was going to give it a go and if it did well, then I do it. And I, it's been going now for nine years. So that's great. Um, there's other, different entrepreneurial things that I've tried that didn't go so well. And so those drop by the wayside and the ones that catch on and do good, you know, I enjoy them. <laughs> what is a couture company? Uh, high end black tie dresses for women. So like I've dressed, um, Miss America and Mrs. World and the ambassador to Haiti. I dressed his wife for their 50th wedding anniversary party and different things like that. So what do you do? You design the dresses and, and then make them? Yes. Yeah. Actually, right out of high school, that was the first degree I went out and got. I moved to Miami, Florida and became a fashion designer. And I worked in that industry for a couple of years under a different couture designer. And that's what let me know that I wanted to do the more handmade, one of a kind. I didn't enjoy the mass production side of it. And so I worked in that industry for probably two years. And then very much a little bit like Devil Wears Prada, that movie, um, it's a lot of who can you step on to get ahead. And so I told myself I'd never do it again until I ran my own company. And then, um, I went back to school for a couple different degrees and then opened up my own company about four years after that. How do you manage to do this while you're doing all your other things? <laughs> well, the good thing is, is I've been an insomniac since high school. So that definitely helps. <laughs> no sleep. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Getting into motorcycling then, um, you decided to, to do a, a trip. You've, you're saving your money. And um, what do you end up doing? So I decided to take a trip to all 50 states in Canada for a year. And I was going to camp along the way and see a lot of the sites I had seen as a child because I grew up in a very adventurous family that made camping kind of um, – a weekend thing, but also during school breaks. I mean, whenever we had time, we were out there seeing what was around us. And when I was younger, we didn't have a lot of money. So camping was our only option. And so as we grew older and the, my dad advanced in the military and was able to provide greatly for his family, our trips changed, but we always still loved to camp. 
So originally camping was the only way we could afford to go do a lot of trips. And then it still became the way that we loved to travel. So um, when I decided to take my trip, I knew that I wanted to camp in every state. It was just one of those funny little goals you set for yourself. Um, and then I, I did that as well as in three provinces in Canada. So that was kind of fun. It's interesting because camping now in a lot of times is getting so expensive. It's not something you can do on a budget. I mean, sometimes when you go camping, you go with a family, you're going to pay per person per night and it works out to almost a hotel room. Oh my gosh. It's really funny you say that because I was under the illusion of how I grew up. And, you know, when I was in middle school, we moved to Europe. And then when we came back, I didn't do a lot of camping when I was in college and different things and moved a lot. And so I hadn't been back to it stateside for quite a while. I did wild camping with different friends. And of course, that was always free. And on this trip, it was a solo trip. And so when I first started out, I wanted to be in established campgrounds. And I'll never forget the first one I stopped at in California off Highway Coast 1 was $54 a night. And I called my parents and I said, I can't be on the road for a year. This blew my daily budget. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I know it's crazy. And there's nothing with that. I I remember when I came into, there wasn't even anyone there. It was a pay, you know, well, no one's there. You just put the money in an envelope and it was $34 for the night for one person. That's it. Yes. Yeah. For a tent. I mean, we're not talking RV hookups here. We're talking tent with no nothing. Yeah. I was surprised at that. I tended after that, I stayed at a lot more state parks, which on the West coast seemed to be cheaper. And then on the East coast, those were about the same. They were about 30, 35. So it just kind of depended on where I lucked out. And I did some wild camping off of different, just service roads. Um, but then I also got lucky with different KOAs stepped up and they would give me a discounted rate to $10 for camping when they heard about my trip. So it was really nice. And what did you end up riding on your trip? I rode a 2006 Triumph Bonneville. It's funny, a Triumph Bonneville is not a, a common one, although we had Zoe Cano on here a couple of times and that's what she rode for her trips. Very cool. Yeah, I, I don't know her personally, but I know her through Facebook. Of course, any bike will work. We all know that for adventure yeah. travel. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, people are riding scooters and we've had those on the show as well. So what was it like traveling around to all the states? It was amazing. Um One of the things I did with the Bonneville, though, I did get rid of that factory seat. I got the British Customs gel seat, Mm. so that made a big difference because I did some pretty big mileage days. Um, But I loved taking the bike out. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about when we first started in that I like to do things that aren't meant to go certain places. Like the Bonneville is kind of known as a city commuter bike, and I've always loved them. And so it was kind of between that and a scrambler. And then I had to decide what main roads I'd be on. And so the Bonneville, I had bought it used and it just kind of came at the perfect time. And I was like, well, there's my decision because it's one that's in my budget. And so I bought it and then it took about a year to name it. I got it about a year before my trip and then realized that it was supposed to be Amelia after the great Amelia Earhart. And so we went on our journey and it was amazing. We tried to stay on mostly scenic routes and back roads and little farm roads. And you occasionally had to hit some interstate. Um, I did really good my first eight months barely hitting any interstate. And then I got stuck behind a really big storm and had to make it to Overland Expo and Flagstaff because I was speaking there in May. And so I had to start hitting interstate for like a thousand miles. And then when I was pushing to get to Alaska, I had to hit interstate again. So that was a little bit of a bummer. Um, cause part of my own personal goal was just to stay off of that as much as I could. And as the trip was starting to end and I was pushing seasons, I did have to end up taking a little more interstate. So I was glad to have a big enough bike that could do it. Well, you're sort of pushing, uh, seasons the whole time, really, aren't you? I was, yeah. <laughs> you had to plan that really. 
Yeah, I did. And, you know, you can't really plan for. So the the winter before last winter was supposedly the worst winter that the U.S. had ever had. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be great because we just had the worst ever. It's going to be great for mine. Well, of course, I'm sure that you saw in all the news and the nor'easters and the ice storms that came in the south and the worst storms in southeast that they'd had since like 1897 since they started keeping track. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, no, I rode through hail and ice and lots of rain. And I mean, even when you tried to go around it, you end up getting hit by some of it. But it, it did when you look at my map. A lot of people say, why did you stay in the south so long? Because I had to keep moving. Um, one, because I wanted to see things too, because I'm on a riding adventure. I don't want to sit somewhere and wait for weather the whole time. So I was always on different roads, but a lot of my track is in the South. And then as the weather cleared up, you see me shoot North and then start to ride the North, which I didn't get as long of as I had planned. Daniel, what was the, what did the trip turn out like compared to what you were thinking it would be like? You know, I think one of the biggest benefits is I walked into it with very open expectations. So this trip became a Guinness World Record, but it didn't start out as one. So two years ago when I started saving, I had no idea that I would even go in that direction. And probably 11 or 10 months before I left, I was like, oh, I wonder if this could be a Guinness World Record. And so I had contacted Guinness and I said, hey, this is what I'm doing. And I tried to get it as a new record. And they said, well, we won't do a new record, but you could try to break this one. So that gave the trip a little bit of a direction. So I knew to try to stay off the same roads and to always be on different roads, which was um, in, in perfect combination with the way that I wanted to travel anyways. And there wasn't huge strict guidelines on my route from them. And I'd always been a lover of national parks. So my second day out on the road, I bought my year long, uh, national park pass. And that helped guide me for a lot of my travel. If I didn't know or have something planned and I was like, Oh, where could I go? Oh, I'm going to go see this park or I'm going to head in that direction. Um, and I did the whole trip by maps. I actually didn't have a GPS or a smartphone. The only GPS attachment I had was a spot tracker for the Guinness World Record. And I couldn't access that to like tell me routes or anything. So I did it all just by highlighting maps and folding up the map and putting it in the tank case. And um, I, I enjoyed that. I liked looking at it in the evenings at my campsite and highlighting where I went and thinking about where to go the next day. And sometimes there was definite direction. Um, I visited schools on my way. I had some press things that I did. And so sometimes I had to be a certain place at a certain time, but a lot of the time it was very open and I just had a lot of flexibility with, oh, look at that, the world's largest ball of twine. I didn't even know I was near it. I'm going to turn left and go see it. And which I did, which was, you know, I mean, it was big and it was cool and it was kooky and I loved it. Saw the world's largest ketchup bottle, the goofy things like that that are through the U.S. that just make you laugh when you show up. And those are kind of the fun things about a journey um, of this magnitude, I think that you just let yourself be open to seeing whatever comes your way and having the flexibility of a year, it allowed me to kind of detour like that. So when you set up the, you, you come up to the largest ball of string or the biggest ketchup bottle, what is it? It's just like a, a dirt road that it's a pull out and there's the big bottle there and it's somewhat anticlimactic. Well, the goofiest thing about the ball, the ball of twine, it's like, on a main road in this weird little rural city in Kansas. And it's just bizarre. It's right off the road. And they have um, a roof built over it to protect it and everything. It's kind of goofy. And then there's the sign for like, you're right in the middle of the uh, continental United States, which is also in Kansas, which is down a dirt road in the middle of a field surrounded by cows. 
And it's just like, what the hell? There's nothing. The only reason to drive there is for that picture. Like, that's it. And so it's kind of funny on some of those ones to go and see those things. And um, I chose to do the trip with Rand McNally's. And sometimes on those maps, they have those little goofy things written on there so you can see them on your map. And the, the, I chose those maps because I also liked being able to see right where state parks were because I didn't plan my camping, which was difficult during summer season when it's so popular. Um but I'd just look where there was a little tent icon and I'd head towards it. And if they had space, I'd camp. If they didn't, I'd keep going. So, uh, yeah, you never quite knew where you'd end up. And sometimes those that were following my spot tracker, I remember my folks a couple times tried to guess where I was heading that night. And he's like, you were going west. And then all of a sudden you went north to go east to then head back west. I have no idea what you're doing. And I was like, don't try to guess that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't always know what I'm doing. <laughs> The, the maps versus GPS thing. With the GPS, you tend to look at the world. I always say it's like looking at the world through a straw. You, you know, you get that very narrow look at things. But with the map, you sort of always get that overview. And, and I find if I go by the GPS, I just don't get the overview of where I am. You know, I don't seem to, I, I can't get it in position in my head. Right. Yeah, no, I have the exact same feeling about it. Yeah. I think when I travel, because at some point I want to go through South America and different places, I will have a GPS for that, just for inner city. And I've heard a lot of the maps aren't really reliable. So um, they'll print a road that, you know, they plan on building at some point, but it's not there. So I think I'll stick to a GPS down there. But through the U.S. and through Canada, I, I loved doing it by maps. And I only got lost one time, which wasn't even super lost. I just was stuck in my head as you get on a motorcycle trip and, you know, trying to get through a city. And all of a sudden I realized I was in the next city and I knew that I should have turned before that. So yeah, a GPS would have yelled at me and told me to take my turn, but that was probably the only time that that ever really occurred. Did you get lonely? Sometimes, but not, not too bad. So I think there's, there's different breeds of people and some do solitude very well. Um, I'm one of them. I'm more often alone than I am in groups. And I tend to travel alone even when I was traveling through different places. And I enjoy the group time as well. But um, I just I just finished writing an article where I had to kind of look at the percentages. So I rode with people throughout my trip, but probably for 80% of it was actual full on solo riding and camping. And you meet people at your campsites um, and throughout. So I mean, you can be a social or as reclusive, I guess, as you want to. But there were times, and usually the times that I felt the loneliest was when I'd see something really amazing and you'd want to look and like at someone else's expression and say, did you see that? And there's nobody there, you know? So you're talking to your bike, which I did often. Amelia and I had great conversations. They were all one way, but you know, she got to hear all the exciting things. But yeah, I didn't get uh, too super lonely on the road. There was a nice mix. There was usually breaks in between where I'd where I do solo stuff for maybe a couple weeks at a time before I'd either see somebody. Cause I did do on top of camping. I stayed with family and friends that I hadn't seen for a long time. So I didn't do any couch surfing, but I did kind of my own version of it where I stayed with different people throughout the U S. Um, so like people from college from 15 years ago or my great aunt that I hadn't seen in over 16 years. Did you find yourself um, searching people out, though, when you got into a campsite? Because you mentioned, you know, you can be as social or as reclusive as you want. Uh, when you got to camp, do you, did you find that it was that sort of thing? You've been with yourself all day and you sort of seek out the neighbor and say, hey, how's it going? Right. Um, not often. I found 
depending on where I was, because especially during the winter, I was one of the only crazy people in a tent at these campgrounds. And there was maybe only five other people at the campgrounds. So there wasn't a lot of social interaction in the winter because it was cold. And so everyone would just stay in their RVs. Um, Hang but on a, a second. Winter, time, where are we talking about winter here? <laughs> so winter, I was in the south. But I got hit with all those nor'easters and ice rain and all of that. So I had to spend, during that big ice storm that hit Texas, I made it to a motel probably three hours before that hit. And I ended up having to stay at that motel for three days because the storm was so bad. Oh, well, I thought you said when you were talking about the ice storm and everything, I thought it was before you left. I didn't realize you were riding in it. Yeah, so parts of it, I had hail and freezing rain while I was riding. Um, I actually had... Uh, it was a slow motion, but it was a crash on ice in New Mexico and rode through snow, not real deep, just light. But I always tried to go around stuff. Um, this was a solo journey, but I, in a sense, sort of had a team. My parents back in Arizona were really great about watching weather and watching my spot tracker and saying, there's a tornado 50 miles from you. You need to go a different direction. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And how I, are you communicating with them? Just with a cell phone. So we'd talk before I was on the road. And when I was in areas that they had tornado warnings or severe storm warnings, we talked more often and we'd check in in the morning and then I'd check in at my lunch and they were watching the um, weather for me. Nice. That's always handy to have that. A, a little bit of help, at least when you're out there by yourself. Yeah. So with the national parks, we'd, we'd talked about, you'd mentioned that you would went through and you bought your year pass. Your year pass doesn't cover camping though, does it? No, it does not. No, it just covers your entrance fee. Right. That's what I thought. So what national parks really stood out to you as like the jewels? Um, it's interesting because I always loved Yellowstone as a kid and I went back and fell in love with it again. Uh, I extended there. I camped there for four days and I was only going to spend two. I just, I really loved it. And part of that is the park. And part of that was the camp host who had been a ranger there for 45 years and now retired and was ranger law enforcement and had these amazing stories. And he and I, so you talk about the solo and then the blending, because I thought I'd extend one day and like catch up on my journaling. And he came by and I offered him coffee and we sat. And then he took me out on the boat later. And so sometimes when you feel like you need those alone times to catch up on your journaling or you just want to read a book by the campfire is usually when my days became most social. When I thought, oh, I'm going to have a nice relax, just catch up on stuff day. And then all of a sudden there would be just people everywhere. So Yellowstone for me, I got to see a mama grizzly and the babies. And I, I feel like I just had a wealth of animals there in perfect weather. I, and it changes. There's a loop in Yellowstone. So one side can be beautiful. And the next side, I was in my rain suit with hail because the elevation was so high. So it just, I don't really know how to ex describe it. Um, I guess magnificent is the word I'd use. I really love it there. So Yellowstone, what others? Um, the Redwood Forest is always a fun one just because those trees never cease to amaze you. They're just huge. Mount Rainier, I caught on a perfect day. The reflection lake that they have, it was completely flat. And so I have this beautiful picture of a snow-covered mountain reflecting off the lake. And so you have these days that just feel magical because the day before the weather was bad and the day after the weather was bad. And that day it was just calm and perfect. Uh, I really enjoyed the Everglades. I stayed there for about four days until it started to get too hot. And this was in December. So I was trying to outrun a lot of the storms and I ended up spending almost a month in Florida and still came out to bad weather. 
but um, I had this time in the Everglades until the mosquitoes got so bad it got so hot, and so then I headed down to the Keys. But I enjoyed the Everglades and did kayaking through there, and one of my favorite memories from the whole trip happened in Florida when I got to swim with the manatees. I had never done that before, and they are the cutest creature I've ever been around, so I liked it very much. But fairly big, too. They are gigantic, but they're vegetarians. So once you learn about them, because at first I was scared of them, but once you learn about them and you just sit and you float the way they float, so they're sort of blind. They just want to check you out if you're not moving too much. So if you stay still in a life vest, they will come right up to you and do what is called a manatee kiss. And really it's because they're almost so blind, they feel you with their whiskers. They'll come right to your face. It's amazing. And then you can scratch them if you move your hand really slow. And they'll roll over just like a puppy dog and have their belly rubbed. Did you do the same thing with the gators? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't have that, that swim thing with them, do they? No, no. I remember when I was walking around one of the little lakes, because I went to college in Florida, and so I had had a pass to the Everglades when I was younger, and I remembered this one lake being full of alligators. So I went back there, and man, there's none. And I'm just walking until I see one about two and a half feet from me. Of course, I would have walked right in front of it, but I barely saw it. It was blending in so well with the mud. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So that one gave me a little bit of a fright. But usually I was further away from them than that. Because that's too close anyway, isn't it? That's way too close. If he wanted to, he he could have just snapped and gotten to my leg before I ever could have moved. I don't know why he just stayed there. Maybe he was sunbathing. But when I realized what I had seen, I moved out of the way backwards very quickly. So luckily he wasn't. And that's one of those times you were turning around to say, did you see that? And nobody was there. I know. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, where's my camera crew? Who got that on film? (laughs) But Daniel, that's where you want a smartphone. So you just pull it out and you snap the shot. And that's the whole idea of it. I know. You are not the first to tell me that. I know. But see, you know, with my history with work. So part of this trip for me was not being connected the whole time. And if I had a smartphone, I would have been on it. So how about computer? Did you take a computer with you? I took a little iPad with an attachable keyboard, so I did have that with me so that I could, you know, because in today's day and age and wanting to uh, upload about the trip and expand my horizons in the travel community, you do need to have access to that. So I did have that with me, um, and it was my first Apple product, so probably not the best idea to get a new product right before you hit the road, but there were some, some quirks to learn, but it became a really good a really good piece of equipment for me, and I still use it today. I have a normal computer too, but... I still use that one. Hmm, That answers my question. I was going to ask if it survived the trip, but obviously it did. It did actually. Yeah. And I had done some research. There's this woman who does a lot of solo travel all around the world. And I feel really bad because I'm spacing her blog right now, but she does great product reviews. And she had talked about this case that the iPad folds down into and it really protects it. And it did well. My screen never cracked, nothing. Yeah. Nice. So what did you end up covering? 50 states um, and then some provinces in Canada? Uh, All 50. Yeah, I did all 50 and then three provinces in Canada. Which three provinces? So I went up from Montana into um, BC, Alberta for the national parks there. And then as I was looping over into Alaska, part of the Yukon. And then up to Alaska and then back. And then then you're just back to normal life. Um, Yeah. So I had a lot of bumps when I was submitting for the record when I got back, like different things that the spot tracker dropped that wasn't an error of me pressing the wrong button or anything. It was the system that they had. And so their CEO got on board and really made sure to tackle all of that because those files, my record was dependent on all of that. And so there was a lot of stresses at first when I first got back and trying to get stuff submitted and reacclimate to life and 
the way that, that life does, it throws a lot at you. So there was a lot of different things going on in my family at that time. And so the first month and a half back, I mean, I found myself really wondering what the hell I was doing and I need to get back on the bike and just go back out there. But yeah, so sort of back into the, the swing of things, normal life. I mean, I, I took a, a contract to fulfill a need down here inside the Grand Canyon. So, I mean, I guess that's a normal thing to do. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm a good judge on what is normal, to be honest with you. But um, I have never been a good judge of it either, because I don't know. Everyone kind of was like, "Oh my gosh, that's amazing!" And I was like, "Well, it just made sense to me. <laughs> Sounded like a fun job." What is the Guinness Book record that you have? So I just broke the longest journey by motorcycle in a single country, and Guinness got back to me two days ago to let me know that I was the first ever female to break or hold that record. Nice. Now somebody, of course, is going to be out rushing to beat your record time-wise. Was there a time continuum to that? No, there's not. And that's the thing. Like if you're well-funded and you can stay on the road in one country for 10 years and ride all of their roads, then you can definitely do that. Right. Um, my timeline, beca- it was because of my funds. That's what I had saved for. So that's why it was a year for me. So what's to come down the road? I mean, you haven't stopped riding yet, right? No. No, it's just a little pause. Definitely haven't stopped writing. Um, I am working on the book. I have a couple books already out on different philanthropy things I've done around the world, but this will be my first adventure motorcycling book. But that's probably at least a year off of completion and then at least six months past that for publication. So it's definitely not right around the corner, but that is coming. And I'm continuing to work on my videos while I was on the road. Uh, things fell behind because you're on the road. And at first I, I fell a month behind, then I was two months behind. And, um, so I'm completing month nine video should be up in the next few days. When you were riding, you were planning on editing the videos and putting them up each month as you went. I planned on being at least a month and a half behind, but yeah, I did that from the road. I That's completed tough. seven different videos while I was on the road. That's tough to do. And you're editing that on your iPad. Yes. Yeah. Well, how does someone find out more about you and the adventure that you've just done? So the best way to find out kind of what's going on or all-encompassing is to just go to my website, danellelynn.com, D-A-N-E-L-L-L-Y-N-N.com. And then from there, you can click on the link to the blog that was specifically for this journey called Black Tie to Black Top. And you can either go through my website or you can just go black tie number two blacktop.com. Well, Danelle, thank you very much and um, congratulations on your record. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Well, that was Danelle Lynn. You can find out more about Danelle and all the adventures that she has and the books she's written by visiting her website, www.danellelynn.com. And that link will be in our show notes if you have any trouble finding it. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, who we're very proud to be associated with. They've been outfitting adventure riders since 2002, and they've got 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. That's free. You can just go to their website, maxbmw.com. That's M-A-X-B-M-W.com. 
And another company we're proud to be associated with is Best Rest Products. They're home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, and the Easy Air Tire Gauge, and a bunch of other motorcycle gear. So whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a reliable tire inflation method. And that is definitely the Cycle Pump. It's what we use ourselves here at Adventure Rider Radio. And get this, it's got a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are riders themselves, so they know what you need when you're out exploring the world. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Puget Sound Safety Off-Road, or PSSOR, provides world-class motorcycle training. Learn proper off-road riding techniques from the pros at PSSOR for your dirt bike, dual sport, or large adventure bike, and increase your skill and confidence so you're ready to tackle your next adventure. Visit www.pssor.com. That's www.pssor.com. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I'd like to give a special thanks to our advertisers, Best Rest Products, Max BMW, PSSOR, Giant Loop, and Aerostitch. Anytime you're dealing with these companies, please let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin and that about wraps it up. Before we go, I also want to give a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Barton. And if you like what we're doing and you want to keep the show coming to you free, drop by our website and consider a donation. You can click on the donation button, and when you do, I think it's over $10, we send you back a little gift to show our appreciation, and it's something you can stick on your bike. I don't want to give it away, but you like it. Also, if you're on Facebook, like who isn't, drop by our site there on Facebook. What do you call it? A page and like our page. I'm looking at a beautiful coastal mountain scene. The snow is on the top, the green is on the bottoms, and that is just the way I like it because I think summer is just around the corner. Hey, if you haven't caught the show already, we have a new show out called ARR Raw, and it only comes out once a month, but it's a great episode to listen to because it's roundtable talks. We've got regulars on there like Grant Johnson, Sam Manicom, Graham Field, Shirley Hardy Ricks, and Brian Ricks, and myself, and we even have guests on. Last month we had uh, Tom on from uh, Adventure Bike TV. So drop by that. It's on our website. You have to download it separately. You have to subscribe separately, so make sure you do that. Go into iTunes. Hey, Speaking of iTunes, drop iTunes and give us a rating, will you? Go on there and let iTunes know what you think of the show. That'll help us out with iTunes. Otherwise, it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 